Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Hello, everyone. We're just going to get right into it. I'm not even going to let you talk. I'm just going to get into it. With We're very thrilled to have Dr. Catherine Cummings Mansfield on our little podcast today. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited. So, Catherine, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of introduce yourself to our guests. You're our guest and to our listeners. This is awesome. Well, I'm a seasoned school teacher and program administrator. I became a professional educator in 1985. So I've been doing this a little while. I've been certified as a teacher and principal in four states. My husband's prior military. So we moved around a bit. Not Mm -hmm. as much as some people, thankfully. I've served in a lot of different roles. Elementary school teacher, gifted program administrator, things like that. And I also worked in a medical center, University of Nebraska Medical Center, as an educator with medically impaired children. And I was like where a lot of my experience with IEPs has been and things like that. I've been a stay-at-home mom. I've done all kinds of things. I always say I'm, I'm really lucky because I've had like at least nine lives. <laughs> I think that that's <laughs> okay. 20. Yeah, no, I love that. I don't think any of us are meant to do anything so long. (laughs) I mean, I think it works for some people, but I think for the majority of people, we shouldn't be just doing one thing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Based on experiences that you have and realize, you know, I think our eyes get open to so much more, not just from being in school, but like being around different people and experiences. And I'm sure going to all the different states, like, you're experiencing so much different kind of lives almost. Right. Yeah. And it's weird because like being in education then leaving for a while as as a mom and then going back to school as a mom, I mean, that's another topic, but I mean, just the things that have changed that, you know, what goes around, comes around, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually we ended up in San Antonio in Texas and I went to school. I commuted up to Austin to the university of Texas there and I, worked on my PhD there in educational policy and planning. So I'm really interested in politics and things like that and policy, as you can probably imagine. And right now I'm an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And I'm in the Department of Educational Leadership and Cultural Foundations. That's a big mouthful. Do you want to know a little bit about my research? Or do you want yeah, me to I mean, and that? that's where we were. Yeah, that's why we were so thrilled to have you on. I mean, especially being able to kind of see so many different perspectives. And then essentially what your his, your research is, is the historical, political, social, economic, or cultural mm-hmm. context, how yeah. education fits into that, as well as identifiers such as gender, race, and like, yeah. Yeah. So, if yeah, you want to talk so, a little bit more. You know, over time, just, you know, my experience as a teacher, as a mom, as a citizen, all of these kind of different identities of my own have come into play with what I'm interested in studying and just 
over time, really seeing that the educational situation, whether it's policy or, or, or IEPs for individual students or whatever, of hiring a teacher, it's so complex. And there's all these different layers, right? You've got your social context, race context, history, that kind of thing. And it, in the United States, as you know, with states being in charge of, of education, then you've got that layer. Just right. when I kind of sort of figured out Texas, I moved to Virginia, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and so I really try to kind of immerse my research in kind of that historical, political, sociocultural context. But also based on my experience, not only as a youngster, growing up in poverty, but also as a teacher who worked in really diverse places, I noticed that it isn't just the outside context, it's also people's perceptions of you and ways that gender and race and ethnicity, religion, all of those different things, language, ability, uh, dis in parentheses, ability, interact with the cultural context as well in the school and right. the state. So all of those things really make studying education and being an educator and being a parent and you folks too as attorneys trying to help folks through this process very complex, right? Absolutely. There aren't any one, one answer solutions to things. So I think just that whole complexity of education is really what interests me a lot. And it's only going to get more complex as we enter this phase of who knows how long we're going to be in distance learning and what is the impact going to be. I mean, we're already seeing a disproportionality of families who are not able to educate their children to the same extent. I mean, you're seeing so many families nowadays that are like, well, I'll just create my own pod with other families and hire a teacher. And it's like, not only do most families not have the financial capabilities to do that, but both parents are probably working. So there's no one to be home. I mean, just we're seeing, and it's, it's interesting. I've seen a lot of things online that are like people saying, the disparity that people are seeing now is the disparity that we've been talking about for years. It just hasn't been in the forefront because, and we talk about this all the time, like education should be one of the most important things that's talked about politi in political conversations, but it's not. And now we finally are having that conversation. It's getting it to do justice, do, you know, it's justice. And I would assume your research is, I mean, you probably have so many more things you want to, you know, look at and dive into now. <laughs> yeah, that's part of my problem is I'm interested in so many things, but you're absolutely <laughs> right about how, you know, I have colleagues, especially my black women friends who have been studying a lot of this stuff for decades and have pointing it, been pointing it out for decades. And so COVID is just another one of those kind of magnifying glasses that, you know, kind of helps us hone in and see that, you know, this disproportionality that we've known about for a long time. I've looked at it with gifted education, you know, the color and class divide there. I've looked at it with discipline procedures. Even when we account for different positionalities of the student, you know, students who are black, students who are special education, not only are they punished more often, but they're punished more harshly. And you probably already know that. And then you have these identities that intersect. And it just all of this is happening and has been happening. But now COVID really 
puts us in a tough position and something that's driving me bananas and I didn't really count on talking about this and so just tell me to be quiet I'm getting off topic no, but no, you're fine. I'm on Twitter and I love Twitter and I learn a lot on Twitter <laughs> but, the thing, but I do I, I get the coolest ideas from people for yeah. but I the thing that's making me crazy is parents and others rightfully are complaining and posting screenshots of like letters they're getting from their school district and emails and things like that about your child will have to have their camera on or they will be penalized and they have it on for six hours and they can have water nearby but no eating i'm like who i won't swear yeah (laughs) lying you know what because it's like don't we just want them to learn? What are right. the children? It's making me sick. It really yeah. is. And I'm just so grateful and I'm so privileged that my children are college age, right. that I don't have to worry about that. And that I'm privileged right now that I'm working from my home. Right. I mean, growing up, there's no way. My mom was working. There were five of us. Wow. Oh, I was going to say another thing. They must be at a desk or, or a dining room table I'm like we didn't have furniture we had this little two-bedroom flat with mattresses on the floor and I say that not to get you know sympathy or anything but only to point out that real people like me I'm a real person might not live in a house that has furniture right absolutely my choice and they say don't you can't be in bed that's like one of the rules my only private space would have been in the mattress that I shared with my two youngest brothers. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting that there's so many restrictions being placed and teachers and administrators saying, well, we're going to place all these restrictions. But then when it comes to talking about how are we going to go back to in-person school, the question of whether or not we can get a child to wear a mask is all (laughs) of a sudden out of the question. And I go, I remember back in school how strict, like, dress codes were, right? We have schools that have full-on dress codes where they're wearing uniforms. I mean, talk about, like, you know, even the sense of, like, we've learned so much in the past decade about how giving children an ability to move around, like, that's why we have accommodations that are standing or sitting. We have classrooms that have different levels of desks we allow Mm -hmm. them to have movement breaks we know that's how best they learn and now we're going back to this very strict and like we can control that we can't control that it it, none of it makes sense it's like no logical thinking is happening it doesn't make sense at all and it's really i don't know it's absurd for one thing it's just absurd (laughs) but i feel like it's damaging you know i think of my own situation and i think of my own personal children and what they might have gone through and you know i'm in a privileged position now as a professor that has all our needs met and we have our home and our food and whatever and it still would have been tough for us and my kids I just say if I if my kids were in k-12 right now they would be hearing from me like I would be down there raising heck and yelling because it, it would make me crazy to have someone telling me what my kids that they couldn't wear their pajamas or they couldn't have their school in bed and I'd be like Excuse me, I'm the mom. Right. I'm the boss here. Why are you doing this? And you it, know. And I think it comes from a good place, but it kind of shows 
their privilege, right? So, you know, you kind of want structure and you're thinking about, but when you don't have people of color in the room, if you don't have people with diverse backgrounds in the room, when you're talking about these things, you're just thinking, oh, well, this is, everybody has a dining room table. So of course you need to do this. And I think that that is the biggest tell, right? Is that you do not have real people um, as part of the conversation. And even as, you know, a working mom or something like that, who would want to raise hell, you know, down, down at the school board, she cannot because she has 15 million other things that are going on. Right. And what I've told right. a lot of my clients is you need to look at this as guidelines. Let them try to punish, you know, ask for forgiveness. Don't ask for permission, right? And it's hard because when we were in school, you're, or at least I was a rule follower, but I mean, it's hard. You're getting all these mandates and they're telling you, you got to do this, you got to do that. And it's just like, no one is going to tell you what you need to do and how to get your kid to school during this pandemic. Like, it's just yeah. not. And that's given them some solace, but it is. It's difficult, especially when you have people of privilege that are trying to instill a type of structure that no longer exists. And I think right. there's denial well, in that as well. Right. Yeah. And when I see all these families who are just, well, I'm just going to take my kid out and I'm going to do my own thing. Like, obviously, the first thing that comes to most people's minds is, well, if more kids get taken out of the public school system, that's less money that's going in. And the kids that are left behind, you know, are usually those of low socioeconomic status that are children of color, children of poverty, children with disabilities, right? So they're getting less resources. But the other thing that boggles my mind is there's so many people who want to speak up right now and are complaining. And it's like, if you would take that energy that you're spending on looking up for your own pod and looking for your own teacher and doing all of that, if you would take the other families and go to the school district and help them figure out how we can safely go back to school, use your energy that way, then maybe, because I really think that like a lot of the time people, like we tell, and we hear this all the time from parents, they don't go to their school board meetings. It's, it's the few loud ones that go, right? So the school board, the administrators, they do what it is that their privilege tells them, their experience tells them, right? And right. until someone else tells them otherwise, they're not going to change their ways. So these families need to be, you know, kind of making more waves, especially the ones who have the privilege to do so. And by not doing it, you're doing a disjustice to the rest of the kids in the class and society as a whole, really. So I think that's a really interesting thing that we're not seeing. Like we're seeing some, I think, families try to push their schools to do things differently. But I don't think I'm seeing it enough. People are just giving up. Yeah, it's such a, like, it's so complex and it's hard. And I, you know, I was a school teacher for a long time and I have friends who still are. And, you know, for the most part, teachers really do care and they are doing the best they can. And so I really feel for them. And I would not want to be a school principal right now. Like most of my doctoral students are principals and they are struggling and just working so hard. So I just want to put that out there that I do empathize and I do understand that it's a tough situation that I would not want to be dealing with. But at the same time, most public school teachers and principals, most are white and come from at least a middle class background and their experiences are different. Right. And mm-hmm. they're not necessarily trying to be mean to a child who maybe comes from more vulnerable like economic circumstances, but it just isn't 
in their thought process to think, oh, well, what if they don't have furniture? You know, I remember one time I was teaching a master's class of students who wanted to be principals. So, you know, there were teachers and kind of directors of programs and things like that. And they, they got in the conversation of parents who don't want to go to conferences or don't want to go to, to open house, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And one person said something about a parent or a grandparent or an auntie or somebody who came to open house and didn't have teeth or something like that. And everybody busted out laughing. I stopped and I said, you're talking about my mother. And they looked at me and I said, my mom's teeth all fell out. You know, every time a tooth fell out, she was more and more embarrassed to go to the school. Right. So in my years of experience, I think I've met one parent who didn't care about school and she was a drug addict. The assumption (laughs) that if someone doesn't if a parent doesn't do X, Y, and Z, they must right. not care about their kid's school. Right. Happens way too often without that person thinking, maybe they can't get there. Maybe they take public transportation and it's at a time where they can't. Maybe they're working at that time. Maybe, right. you know, they have to take care of their kids. You know, maybe they're sending grandma because it's the only person available. I, I think not enough people think about that and they just make assumptions. Or maybe they're just darn tired. You know, all I mean, yeah. I'm a privileged woman and sometimes I just don't want to go. I'm right. tired. You know right. what I mean? Like the assumptions that we come to the table with are can be really painful for the most vulnerable, the, the little kids that we're trying to help. And so, you know, but again, I want to say, go back that those students, I care for them. I They're good people. They're not evil. I'm not saying that. It's just that it was funny to them to see a toothless person, right? And they had never experienced that before. And, you know, it's just kind of is more of a sign of lack of exposure to lots of different types of folks and just being kind of sheltered in your lives. And if you're going to be a school teacher, you're going to have to be exposed to a lot of different people because this country is so diverse. Right. And I think that it's just at times and it's a lack of compassion. And I don't mean that in like you don't care about the parents or you don't care about the students, but it's being confronted with something that is different than you and not wanting to change the perspective of like, man, I've reached out to this mom five times via phone call, let's just say, right? And not even thinking, maybe I should text her, right? <laughs> maybe I should grab her, you know, I know she comes and picks up her kid, maybe, you know, and, and I think we all get into this. And I think that it does obviously, you know, stem from so many different biases and, and different perspectives, but not mm-hmm. even taking the time, you know, that it's always like walk a mile in their shoes, you know, and things like that. And I'm, yeah. I'm sure as teachers are exposed to different types of parents and things like that, you know, we all get jaded 100%. <laughs> and just, you yeah, know, we're all, have we're our all human. Our yeah, we're all right? human. Yeah. Absolutely. But just to like what you did in that moment was you made them stop right you made them stop laughing but more importantly stop and think about it and just be like oh here are all the reasons why yeah they wouldn't want to show up and I think what's also great and I know that this was featured on the academic minute or or something for Mm -hmm. NPR but was your take on you know if you want to really improve schools you know, ask the students. Ask the students. And it's yeah. not something within our realm. We don't think that, you know, you're old enough to speak until you're 18 and you're going to do what we say. And I mean, you could ask a five-year-old, right? Oh, for <laughs> and, sure. and they'll tell for you. Sure. But I wanted you yeah. to talk a little bit about that because I think that, I mean, Amanda and I, obviously the client is our child. The 
the parent makes the decisions and things like that. But sometimes our perspective of the law and what is actually in the best interest of the child is completely different than the parent, right? Right. So it's a very interesting position that we find ourselves in sometimes. But I just, I wanted to kind of get some more information and let people know about that and your, your perspective and how you got there. Yeah, you know, like you said, you know, when, you know, we talk about school improvement, it's one of those complexities that we've been talking about for a long time, and people have been fretting about for a long time, and mm-hmm. it's kind of been a vexing thing for a long, you know, many decades. But, you know, people, when they think about improving schools, I think of things like, you know, improving test scores, or, you know, whatever, paying teachers more would be helpful, I can say that, <laughs> for sure. But, you know, the thing that we don't do is ask the students. Right. So my thing, you know, this whole background of mine with the PhD in educational policy from Texas is thinking about schools as democratic spaces, right? And Mm -hmm. so we supposedly live in a democratic society. So what should a school look like in a democratic society, right? And I'm not the first person to bring this up. I mean, this has been discussed for hundreds of years. John Dewey in the early 1900s was was writing about this. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, if we think about schools as being a real political place, you know, the politics of education are things like who gets the funding, right? Right. What should be taught, you know, what, the curriculum, yep. how yeah. best to teach the pedagogy, which values and dispositions should we emphasize? You know, this is stuff that's been wrestled with for, for forever. And then now in this historical moment that's been repeated over and over again, the Black Lives Matter movement, we call it now, but it's come and gone Absolutely. in different phases. Yes. You just start thinking about, well, how do we teach students, I won't say kids, because it could be little guys, it could be big guys, whatever, youth, children, whatever. How do we teach students to be part of a civic community? And how do we teach students to be active? And if we're not doing that, why? What are the political things behind that? You know, we Mm. think of education policy as being something that's neutral. Mm. Right. This is curriculum. That's all it is. Right. Something that's neutral, whatever. But so my favorite thing to do is to look at policy and look at curriculum and look at those things with critical eyes and say, okay, how it supposedly is neutral on the surface, just like the COVID thing we've been talking about, like having the camera on and all of that, or having a desk. It seems neutral. I'm not being mean. I'm just saying, I'm trying to help these kids learn. But if you look at it with a critical eye, with either through, you know, racial lenses, gender lenses, poverty, you know, disability, whatever, if you look at it through a critical lens, you find that so much of our education policy is actually skewed. And so then what do we do about that? You know, when we find that something's like, let's say a discipline policy or a, we talked about dress code. Dress mm-hmm. code affects girls way more Absolutely. than boys. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even tell you. I've had to pick up my own child, my own daughter at school because her skirt was, you know, a half of an inch above her fingertip. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, you know, what is that all about? Mm-hmm. So looking at policy through a gendered lens in that regard tells you a little bit about patriarchy and how we feel about women's bodies. Absolutely. Absolutely. So asking students what they think about dress code, like if you, there are studies done where there have been school districts who have let the students decide. And, you know, people think, oh my God, if we give that power to students, it's just going to be a shambles. It's going to be bedlam, right? There's going to be, you know, just ridiculousness. They're going to be running around naked. (laughs) No. (laughs) 
<laughs> not so much. And with me as a, being a school teacher as well as a mom and moving around a lot, some of the schools where they were really strict, and I know this will not surprise you, human beings know this about students, the really strict codes, they did everything to push it to the limits, right? If they yeah. were have their hair cut a certain way or they're dressed a certain way, they would push it to the utmost limit. And then the schools that I attended, either as a parent or as a teacher, where it was really much more just come on and learn. I don't right. care if your hair's green. Right. Literally, I right. don't care if you have 40 piercings yeah. and a bunch of tats. I don't care if you cover them. Just get your booty to school. Like right. that was the the deal. It, the place was much nicer to be in. I saw diversity. I saw, you know, kids or young adults and children just being themselves and learning and having fun yeah. and matter what color their hair was. You know what I'm saying? So well, we definitely don't give really kids, Yeah, we don't give okay. kids enough credit, I don't think. Students enough credit right. that they do think about things and they pay attention and they're... <laughs> You know, like they have a mind, they have an opinion that's worth listening. And I think that's, that's why we get so many young people who don't care to vote, who don't care to be involved yeah. in the democratic process because they've never in their life been given that opportunity exactly. to do it. They've always been told, well, it doesn't matter what you think. We're right. going to tell you, we're telling you what to think, what to wear, what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, how to walk, how to talk, right? So how do we expect them to think on their own? Right. And you can't. You know, there is movement toward turning our schools back into more democratic spaces. Not that they were ever perfect, for sure. And it varies a lot, as we know from, as your experience has, I'm sure, taught you according to state, but especially according to school district and things like that, and even individual schools based on the principal. But there is a movement, you know, folks, people have been really working hard, you know, whether it's parent groups, uh, folks like you who are trying to help parents understand policy spaces, Mm -hmm. understand what their rights are. Mm -hmm. There have been these different movements through the last couple of decades that have brought more, I think, democratic situations to schooling as far as you know, the IEP situation, not having it written ahead of time and having parents actually give input. Again, it might not be in the best interest, so there has to be some give and take. Why not ask the students? That's the thing about research, too. That's my thing now is being a researcher. When I go into a school setting, I ask the kids I ask, or the young adults. I just say, what do you think about what's happening in here, right? right? And not a lot of research is done. Well, a lot of research is done on kiddos with IEPs or kiddos with special needs or young people with special needs. But not a lot of research is done where they actually speak with students right right yeah so wouldn't it be interesting i don't specialize in special education as far as you know my research agenda per se but wouldn't it be interesting if researchers started talking to kiddos or or young people who were had ieps and asked them what they thought about their placement absolutely yeah what do you think about your do you think this is a least restrictive environment right how do you feel about it and you know it's funny we there's this netflix documentary that had come out at the beginning of this quarantine called crip camp and essentially yeah it's just the beginnings yeah crip camp i'll 
I'll email it to you. <laughs> and Thanks. I wrote it down because I'm yeah, like, I always look no, no. I think you'll find it very fascinating. And I say this only because you know it really followed this set of individuals with different and varying needs that had come to a camp that was like very hippy dippy, right in the '60s, early '70s, of wanting to include children with special mm-hmm. needs into a, you know just a camp, a summer camp, and how mm-hmm. all of this particular group essentially led the way, the revolution, if you will, for disability rights in the mid-70s. And the documentary of this early footage, because there was some type of production company or somebody that wanted to like follow along. So you have, you know, these people at 16, 17, 18, talking, talking about, about their experiences as a child with disability. And then all of a sudden you see them, you know, just five years later, leading the uh, protests and sitting in the San Francisco offices. It's very well done. I think you'll very much enjoy it. I but, would totally watch that. <laughs> but I mean, it is, there is a wealth of information that is just left out there mm. and people are not collecting it. And, you know, it's, you know, Amanda and I always try to make it a point to meet with the child so that they understand who we are, what we're doing, and to try to get their perspective on things because sure. sometimes they're, keen to open up to us because I'm your attorney, right? Oh, okay. Well, you're my, you know, and we got some of the kiddos that are like, oh, well, you can't say anything to anyone if you're my attorney. And it's like, yep, that's right. You know, and they're freer to talk to us about that, you know, than their parents. And I think it would blow some people's minds because the labels are oftentimes what we fight against. People like to label and categorize things. And I've said this a million times during this quarantine, but Amanda and I, had, we were proud of the fact that we were a firm that an attorney that thought outside of the box, but now we don't even know what the box is. So that's even better, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Like we don't even know what the box is, so it doesn't even matter, right? And I think that would would be tremendous. And there's just so many great things that so many different people. I mean, just the work that you're doing, even though it seems like it's a lot, it's not. There's so much crossover between how socioeconomics affects the gender and race, and it may seem like a lot, but I mean, I think your research is fascinating. <laughs> that's oh, why we thank you just, so yeah. much. You know the school that I followed, you know, I started doing, I did a, an ethnography, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's basically studying the culture of a place, you know, it's based in anthropology, and I followed a school from the ground up, it was a, a new school okay. um, designed to serve young women, girls and young women, specifically focusing on STEM, but they did other things as well, Okay. and the principal was this remarkable woman who totally understood this whole idea of democracy, and that, you know, women need a special space, like, like what we were talking about before we started recording, mm-hmm. right? We were Absolutely. talking about how women need that special space to talk about their lives, their lived experiences. Okay, Absolutely. so this woman was amazing that way. And she would bring women in from the community to talk to the girls. They were all from economically vulnerable circumstances, very diverse, mostly Latina because of where we, I was in the state of Texas, but also African American, um, some white students and a lot of girls who would share that they were mixed race. So not only did they have this special space to talk as girls and young women, but they also recognized the importance of talking about racism, sexism, all the different isms, and just like, how do I handle myself as a young lawyer, you know, when I go to college and have to advocate to a professor if I'm having an issue or whatever. But this principal was phenomenal. And she also, well, the, the 
the philosophy of the school, they decided to, and it was a public school. It okay. is a public school. Okay. Texas. They're going to treat everybody as gifted, whether they're not going to even attest them. Like they're all going to be expected to take AP yes. coursework, you know, advanced yes. placement. And if they can't handle it, we're going to provide the supports underneath it to help them with tutoring or whatever. Incredible. Give them high expectations and they will rise to it. Amen. And there were people who were double qualified, you know, folks, as you know, there are kiddos in special education who might be labeled GT in math, but be labeled learning disabled in reading or whatever. But anyway, so like this, they, they actually helped interview and hire teachers. They helped run the school. Like they had a voice. They, it was just the most amazing thing. And I really learned a lot from it. And that's kind of where that student voice stuff has started with me and where like that's like my direction of my research that's become my emphasis now and I think what that principal understood was the power of relationships right yes relationships with the community relationships with the students relationships with the staff you know and it's just and I think that is so powerful and I, I think that especially in America we're just very like we're stuck in this cowboys kind of mentality we're gonna pick ourselves up with drafts and you make it and you're number one and humans are not meant to be like that humans right. need to be in you know it takes a village to raise a child it's not individual and i think that idea and concept of a relationship if you could implement it in a school like that like of course everyone would rise to that level most exactly. definitely that's exactly incredible. and the students talked about it that was the thing it made my research so easy i mean i've just i just <laughs> because I just sat there while they talked, right? And then I'm writing up the findings and get my dissertation done because I'm. They, it's their voices, right? Right. Everybody, like separately, apart, in focus groups, whatever, talked about whether it was the parents, the teachers, the kiddos, the staff. Everyone talked about things about relationship, how mm-hmm. it was like a family, a familia, mm-hmm. and yep. how they were like sisters. And the students talked about how much they loved the principal and the counselor. And I mean, it was just like a place of love. Did they fight? Yes. Absolutely. Fight. And they would talk about that. Like they would yeah. say there's drama sometimes. They were very honest. There's always tension, right, in any culture, whether it's a family or a school or a workplace. But if you have a relationship, you can say, hey, listen, we need to have a talk about this. Right, right. I'm not jiving with you on this right now. We need to have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, and it develops that level of trust that, you know, I think a lot of times teachers and administrators are hesitant to ask the child, how best do you learn? What would help you? Because, and I hear this all the time, well, you know, they're just going to go the easy route if you ask them, or they're going to take advantage if you ask them. And it's like, more often than not, if you have that level of trust with the student, they're not going to take advantage. They're truly going, like, we always say there's there's no such thing as a lazy second grader. Like, elementary school students, they want to learn, (laughs) right? They want to do well. It's only that what we do to them that makes them hate school or hate learning, right? So if we have that level of trust and we trust that they do want to learn, they're going to do the right thing. And they're going to say, yes. I feel like I need to stand up when I learn. I need to read while I'm, I need to listen to a book instead of reading it while I'm walking around and I'm going to digest it better. Like, I don't know why we don't listen, you know, to enough, but I think you develop that level of trust, that relationship. They're not, you're not going to have the downsides of asking them. 
Yeah, and, and I have, I'm really passionate about that. You know, just as a school teacher, when I harken back to 1985, you know, my first year was a little crazy. I can't believe my students seek me out on Facebook and want oh, to be friends. So I, I would say they, they survived my first year. <laughs> <laughs> but I always call them my little butt ups, you know, the kids that had to be like, either standing with their little butts up in the air. It was first grade, or they had to be like with their knees on their chair with their little butts up in the air. And my little butt ups just needed a little more space, you know? Right. And so it yeah. got, got to the, you know, I got to where my classroom was kind of like a um, really well-run sort of bit of noisy, busy chaos, but it was all very productive. Right. And you know, if, if someone didn't know what I was doing with just peeking my classroom, they might be thinking, what in the Lord is going on? Right. Yeah. Because there's kids laying on the floor, there's kids laying, you know, sitting at their desks, there's, you know, whatever, kids laying on the, in the book nook, whatever. But the rule was, if you, as long as you're not bugging anyone and doing right. what you need to do, you know, right. you're not pinching someone, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But you're that's the expectation. Crayons, you're fine. That's you the know? expectation you set because even if you ask the child and they go well I can only work five minutes you know what I think you can work 10 so why don't we try <laughs> 10 right and I think that just being you know already coming to your conclusion just based on well they're going to take the easy way out okay well let's say they do you can change the expectation because you still are in charge of the classroom I think sometimes yeah. when people hear that they think oh you just want to come in and just have the kids run it and it's just like no you're still in charge like oh, sure. you just have to For set real. the expectation but it doesn't mean that you know you don't there to not listen you know you can you right. can give them you that get voice input from them yeah you can because yeah. I would say I was a really strict teacher because you go through, I mean, they had to, everything had a place, like the scissor, you know, everything had a place. We had a schedule. Everybody, it just was like well-oiled, right? Right. Because you can't have that flexibility unless you build that structure. structure. Yep. Right. And that's kind Absolutely. of parenting too, as you're probably discovering. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but I try to translate you know, that to my life now, you know, I work with doc students, some masters, but mostly docs, doctoral students, people either getting their PhD or their EDD. And these are grownups. They want to learn. They want right. to be there. There's a lot of they're money paying. for it. Yeah, yeah. They're paying for it. Yeah. <laughs> paying too much money yeah. for it. And good folk of North Carolina are paying their taxes so that I can have a job, you know. And <laughs> so I take it very seriously. But, you know, I try to give folks some leeway, too, in my teaching, too. So, for example, this past summer, I taught two courses. One was on culturally responsive leadership, and the other one was on the politics of education, which we've been talking about. And the politics of education class, I said, you know, you can take, you know, here are the parameters. You know, you have to refer to the texts that we've read and the articles we've, you know, peer-reviewed articles we've read. You have to kind of like relate, show that you've, you know, engaged with the readings. You know, here's the parameters. But here is the variety of ways that you can show it. You can write a typical research paper if you want, or you can design a political poster. You can make a infograph. Awesome. You can do all these different things. You can make a video. You can do these different things. A public service announcement, a PSA, and they came up with the coolest stuff, you guys. People would say, oh, Dr. Cat, because that's what they call it. Dr. Cat, you're way too easy. You, you let them do this artistic thing. I'm like, have oh. you ever tried to make an Oh, my play? God. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, art art takes like 12 hours. Right, right. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm anti-interrupted you. Go ahead, Harley. Oh, no. 
I would just say art and creativity isn't always easy, especially for, like, there are people who are so good at, like, art and creativity can think about things, like, outside the box so easily, but it doesn't come as easily for other people. But just the idea that, like, you don't have to be pigeonholed in this one box of, like, write this specific paper, you can do it a little bit differently. Like, it's not necessarily easy, but it allows for the flexibility, I think, for people to do their best work. Exactly. And it's like, aren't we trying to get their brains? You have to know about learning theory. And I'm a teacher, right? So why am I not using this, right? What I learned in college like a million years ago? <laughs> yeah. But like you're scaffolding knowledge in this brain and the idea is how do I translate that into these different forms, right? right. And I'm trying to challenge myself that. I'm in right. my fifties. I'm I'm trying to challenge myself in my own research. How can I make this more accessible to the public? Can I start doing maybe some op-ed pieces? You know, I'm right. really trying to challenge myself in that regard. And anything I ask my students to do, I practice it myself first. So mm. like, I did a video, <laughs> it was, how long was it? Maybe two minutes, you know, with these different graphics and oh, it was so much fun, but it was, it, so it wasn't hard, but it was super time consuming. Right. It took me like 15 hours. Right. Wow. Just to do two minutes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's yeah. what I'm saying. So it's yeah. like, and I had to really, really think and be very sparse, which is hard, as you can tell, because I love the gab. So like, I, like, I really want to say in this right, right. But so, that's the point of the assignment, right? You want them to think about it, not just regurgitate information. And I remember when I was in college, by the time I got to college, I had always been told like I was not a good writer, like English was not my subject math was. And I remember like you think about writing from elementary school to high school in one way. And I got to college and I switched my major like four times, but ended up with child development. And in child development, like almost every single class you're writing the paper or writing something. And initially my thought was, oh, how's this gonna go? And I ended up doing so well in these classes because the writing wasn't this picture perfect, cross your T's, dot your I's, exactly like your English papers in 12th grade. It was more about experiencing, you know, what you were talking about. We did a lot of like writing about what we experienced, right? And yeah. learning about what we saw with children that we worked Observations with. Observations of what they meant. Exactly. Like and mm-hmm. it was such a different form of writing that I had yeah. never been exposed to before that I thought, why is it that like this was the first time that I was told you could write this way and it's a good way of writing and it was a way that you really had to you were thinking about it you weren't just saying well here's a quote from this novel and here's what the novelist meant and symbolism (laughs) yeah let me think about what I've experienced and tell you about it which is what the learning is all about, right? Right, and you probably had to refer back to some of the child theory, you know, Piaget and whoever about yeah. child development, which you're processing the academic right. stuff at the same time, and you're looking at it with real life data. That is deep, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's huge. That's yeah. yeah. I can't say amen loud enough on that one. <laughs> and uh, you know what? We could probably talk to you all day, and we, but we want to be respectful of your time, Dr. Cat. And I wanted to just, I've said this quote a bunch of times, but I think it's just good kind of thing to end on. It's credited to Albert Einstein, but he's um, been said to uh, have, he has been known to have said, everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. And 
Dr. Cat, I just think the research that you're doing just helps to really get people outside of the bubble. And that's why we were thrilled to have you on. And I told you it was going to be fast. And I knew we were going to get a lot of time. You know what, Dr. Cat, like this is, you know, you, we are able to do our job because of people like you. And you have been such a pleasure for, we'll probably have you on again. We say that whenever we have too much to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) And I have really cool friends too that I could recommend. So (laughs) we love that. But, and now I'm going to just call you Dr. Cat as well. But thank you so much. Thank you so much for you coming on to so our podcast. Well. Oh, I hope we can meet each other in person that someday. Would that would be amazing. Yes, that would be really great. I would love really that. Great. So would it be weird if I asked you to stay in touch? Absolutely not, no, because not we are going to tell you that you can't get rid of us. So Are you on Twitter? <laughs> no, I don't do. I don't mess with Twitter. I don't F around with Twitter. I can't. I got a boundaries. Boundaries. <laughs> I had the boundary for a long time, and I finally got on it. People were like, Catherine, why are you not on Twitter? And I'm like, I can't. I just can't. Yeah. And then yeah. I got on it a few years ago, and I absolutely love it. Kind of dumped Facebook, but still yeah. keep it yeah, yeah. with me. We and, do, you know. Yeah, I think that we do more stuff on Instagram than anything else. My kids and husband made me an Instagram account, and I never use it. They made you it for like five years ago. No, you got it. Just jump on there. You got to jump on there. There's, yeah, I should. should. Yeah, they love it. it. They've changed it so much nowadays that, like, I think the concept of because like we have stories now that are quick that aren't like big posts. That are, I, I would say, similar to, like, Twitter. In you can write. Like, yeah, you within, can write something very short. Mm-hmm. And you're sharing what, like, the whole concept of, like, retweeting. Like, you're sharing other people's posts, too. Like, yeah. that's what we do a lot as well. So, I do I, just like want to say goodbye to our listeners because I feel like we could talk to Dr. Cat a little bit more. <laughs> so uh, we hope you guys enjoyed. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.